A few weeks ago, I was on a walk with a fellow practitioner and they were sharing with me that they had, uh, they had actually lived in Bhutan for a while. And while they were there, they went to this monastery, which supposedly was known to be this wish-fulfilling monastery. And as a result of that, many people would go there and to, uh, to basically place their wish there. And so they were really interested in this and, and they went and they placed their wish at this, at this wish-fulfilling monastery. And then time passed on and while they were still there in Bhutan, they're having this conversation with a monastic about this monastery and about how they had placed their wish at the, at the monastery. And, and, and they had told this, this uh, monk about this wish that they had for their own well-being. And the monk said, oh, oh, very good. But, but here, when we go to a wish-fulfilling monastery, we don't make a wish not only for ourselves, but for others. I found that story so inspiring and something so accurate in terms of this practice that we're doing here together, that we're engaging here in here together. And tonight, this is what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you some reflections on practicing not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And hopefully showing that this is intertwined with this practice. That in some ways, there's no other way to practice than that. That in many ways, when wisdom begins to dawn, there's an understanding that 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 is the only way to practice. And and it's something that that I find really helpful um, to remember, especially on long retreat. It's, it's something that really uh, seems to deepen my practice on long retreat. And, and I want to point out that what I'm sharing tonight for some of you will just be a reminder of what you already know. And for others, it will be possibly a suggestion to see if this fits for your practice or not, or you might have some kind of variation that that fits. And we find, we find the, the Buddha, you could say the Buddha of early Buddhism, speaking to this. And this comes from the numerical discourses from this sutta, sometimes the title uh, given the firebrand sutta. And in that discourse, he shares with us Just as from a cow comes milk, from milk curds, from curds butter, from butter ghee, from ghee the skimmings of ghee, and of these the skimmings of ghee are reckoned the foremost, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, the supreme. In the same way, the individual who practices for their own benefit and 
for the benefit of others, that practitioner is the foremost, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. So here we find the Buddha being very clear about this. This is the most refined practice to do, to practice not only for myself, but, but for others. And this flower is even uh, more predominantly later on in Buddhism. We could say the, the Buddha of later Buddhism was also very keen on this. It taking this form of, of bodhicitta, quite literally Bodhi is awakening, Chitta is heart or mind. And it's said that Bodhicitta has these two aspects, the relative and the absolute. The relative being what I'm sharing with you tonight, this, this aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings. And it's inextricably intertwined with absolute Bodhicitta which is said to be this realization of emptiness, the wisdom that you could say sees through the illusion of a separate fixed sense of self. And for me, there's a a very practical way that I bring this into long retreat that I find helpful. And that's uh, what I do, especially at the beginning of a sit or a walk, especially at the beginning of a sitting meditation, is I have this very brief intention. May, may this practice, may this practice session go for the benefit of all beings. And then what I do is I just engage in the practice. So we're talking maybe 10, 15, 20 seconds. And at the end of that, that practice period, you could say, uh, sharing the merit, sharing the merit of, that, of, 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 the, of this practice that I just did. May the merit of this go to, ben- to the benefit of all beings. And to me, I combine it with the act of bowing. There's something about bowing that brings uh, my heart in the right alignment for that intention. And also, if this is something that you wanna add, I think what's been important for me is, um, you know, I don't worry if the feeling is there or not. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You know, it's not like, oh my God, I feel like such a horrible person because I'm really not feeling it for all, the, uh, all beings right now. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't matter. What matters is simply placing the intention and then moving on with practice. And just to fit this in with what I was sharing, what was it yesterday morning about cultivating the wholesome? That this is an, a, another condition that we can place, that this is the influence that we can put into the system to allow it to move in a different direction, to allow the system to move towards awakening. I had a friend who was a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner had spent most of their quote unquote practice life in Tibetan Buddhism. And he, 
he became really interested in this uh, insight meditation or this Vipassana thing, you could call it. And he went on a retreat and he came back and he told me he was so shocked. He couldn't believe that there wasn't like this formal um, thing that everyone did together of placing this altruistic intention before a sitting meditation, for example, and then sharing the merit afterwards. Such a different culture for him. He thought it was kind of crazy. I had to agree with him. There's something I think so intertwined with what we're doing here and to have it as a basis. How is it helpful? The simple placing of this intention that I'm sharing with you, having this as a foundation for what we're doing here. For me, I feel like it, it, it brings me into contact with just a beautiful quality of heart. And it allows it to be the basis of this path, namely this, this beautiful quality of compassion. And the Indian sage uh, Shantideva, I, th I feel, gives beautiful words to this quality of compassion that you find in this uh, treatise uh, uh, called the Bodhicharya Vatara, the, the way of the Bodhisattva. And it's, it's actually supposedly the Dalai Lama's most favorite text, the Bodhicharya Vatara. And it is, it's one of the most beloved texts that you find in, in all the schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And before I read it, I do want to name, it's, it's a grand description. It's over the top, this practicing for all sentient beings. But I love over the top. I love grand. <laughs> so here's just from, I, th I think this is from the second chapter. This is Shantideva's aspiration underlying his practice. May I become food and drink during times of fam famine. May I be an inexhaustible treasury for the destitute. May I be a protector for those who are without protectors, a guide for travelers, and a boat, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light a bed for those who seek rest. And may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. To all sentient beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling gem, a vase of good fortune, an efficacious mantra, a great medication, a wish-fulfilling tree and a wish-granting cow. Just as earth and other elements are useful in various ways to innumerable sentient beings dwelling throughout infinite space, so may I be in various ways a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they are all liberated. 
And then at the end of the Bodhicharya Vatara, you hear, hear him make this commitment. And as long as space and time endure, and for as long as beings remain, until then, may I too endure to dispel the misery of the world. It's a powerful aspiration, that kind of commitment to all beings. I find it moving. It's interesting, later on in the Bodhicharyavatara, Shantideva says something like, what did I just do? Oh my God, I just made this like huge commitment. What was I thinking? (laughs) For as long as space and time endure? And so he says something like, I think this is on his chapter of generosity. He says, well, in, in some ways to aspire high, but we begin simply. He gives the example of maybe just giving a a few vegetables to monastics, which I found heartening that I can start simply yet have such um, a deep aspiration. And when you hear this, you might wonder, what does this have to do with being mindful of the breath or the sensations as you're doing walking meditation? It might feel like this would be a call more to feeding the homeless or marching in New York or addressing systemic racism or sexism or the dynamics of climate change. And what I want to point out about the Bodhicharya which is so interesting, is that it's, you could say it's a kind of meditation manual. This is for a kind of practice that one would do in such an environment like this. So I feel like he's speaking to us, those on retreat, to have this kind of aspiration. And also in light of this, for me, and it might be different for you, for me, what's important about this practice is that when I'm on retreat, it actually feels like a kind of social action. I'm not saying that it should take the place of social action, but it's still important because it has this potential to be transformative for this troubled yet beautiful world that we live in. And not only that, I, I feel that it's, it's inherently interwoven in this practice that we are doing, as I mentioned before. Because what I start to realize with this practice that it's that actually You can't just practice for yourself, it's impossible. Even if you tried really hard, it just doesn't work that way. We're interwoven 
in this interdependent world, we influence this whole world that we live in. And I want to point out, especially on long retreat, I think probably so many of you know, something happens on long retreat that just doesn't unfold on shorter retreats. I really want to emphasize what you're doing here is such a sacred and powerful thing. There's so much potential here. So how's it personally helpful? How, how's it helpful to the world? I find it helpful on retreat because it, it helps, you could say, prime the prump, pump. It helps prime the mind to begin to step out of the narrow confinement of kind of the, the obsessive self-involvement that can happen. At least I know in this mind it happens. And really into a vastness, a vastness of the Dharma, a vastness that reaches much farther than just my own small little life. And maybe you can relate to this. Have you noticed in that mind of yours, like I notice in my mind, the obsessive self-involvement. I mean, just when I become curious about the activity of thinking and the nature of the thoughts that arise and pass away, it's really about me. I want this, I don't want that. It's some story around me. John Ruskin put it well, he said, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. <laughs> what a wonderful thing to begin to step out of that pretty small package. So I invite you, you might wanna just simply notice how the thought world, the arising of thought can be narrow like that. And what a blessing to begin to do this practice, to engage in this, to step out of that into a different way of being. And when I point this out, I'm not, I wanna be clear, I'm not proposing not taking care of yourself or not being kind and compassionate to yourself, but to just hold it in a broader context. I'd actually emphasize the opposite, what I've noticed, especially this is, I think I noticed when I was engaging, beginning to engage in just a loving kindness practice is that for me to really get kindness, I need to begin with myself. And there can be a kind of habit where there's an ease to be kind to others, but not kind to myself. This is where I needed to, to begin with with this mind right here. This is the mind I can most easily influence. And don't get me wrong, I get, 
I get lost in thoughts and wishing I could influence other people's minds. <laughs> but it just really hasn't been that effective. So how do we practice? How do you practice for oneself and others on long retreat? I'd like to share with you a, uh, a story from a, a discourse that we find in the Connected Discourses. It's in the section of the Connected Discourses on the, the four Satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness. And uh, sometimes called the, the Akrapat Sutta. The Buddha shares this story with the monastics in this sutta. He says, once upon a time, practitioners, a bamboo acrobat setting himself upon his bamboo pole addressed his assistant, Medica Talika. Come you, my dear Medica Talika, and climbing up the bamboo pole, stand upon my shoulders. Okay, masters, the assistant Medica Talika replied to the bamboo acrobat, and climbing up the bamboo pole, she stood on the master's shoulders. So I just want to demonstrate this. So just so you have this, uh, this image in your mind. So there's a, if you see this, there's, if you imagine the stick is kind of the bamboo pole, what the, um, what the, the bamboo acrobat has done is, right, he's climbed up the, the, to the top of the pole. So he's, he's standing on the pole, he's balancing on the pole. And then his, his, uh, his assistant, Medica Talika, climbs up the bamboo pole, climbs above him, and then is standing on his shoulders there. So it's quite the trick to see. And the Buddha continues, so then the bamboo acrobat said this to his assistant, Medicatalika. You look after me, dear Medicatalika, and I'll look after you. Thus, with us looking after one another, guarding one another, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down the bamboo pole. This being said, the assistant Medicatalika said this to the bamboo acrobat. That will not do at all, master. You look after yourself and I will look after myself. Thus, with each other look, looking after ourselves, guarding ourselves, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment and safely climb down from the bamboo pole. That's the right way to do it. And the Buddha says, just so, just like the assistant Medicatalika said to her master, I will look after myself so should you, practitioners, practice mindfulness. You should practice mindfulness by saying, I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, by cultivating it, what I spoke about yesterday morning, bhavana, and doing it frequently. And how does one look after oneself by looking after others? Through patience, non-harming, loving kindness, and caring. So here we have it, this, this quality of looking after oneself, one looks after others. 
mostly through mindfulness. And I find it uh, quite a striking story, don't you think? So here, here the assistant is correcting the master and remembering the cultural context, the woman is correcting the man. So the person outside the dominant power structure has the wisdom. It's subversive. This is what I so appreciate about so much of what the Buddha was talking about. Subversive in a way, in a way that can begin to address harmful powers, harmful structures of power. So being in a world where we can take after ourselves and others. And I know for me, sometimes on retreat, it can feel like, you know, I'm just living in a vacuum. Yet this is different. This is the speaking to this interdependent web this interdependent world that we find ourselves thrown into. The image that I appreciate that helps me get a feeling sense of this comes from uh, uh, Huayan Buddhism, a kind of Buddhism that arose in, in China. And there's this, this image from the Avatamsaka Sutra so you find a number of different images kind of in the last chapter of this uh, quite huge text. And it's this image of Indra's net. And it's the, the image of this, this net, this net that, that stretches out endlessly in all directions. And if you're to look at the net, at each note of the net, there is a jewel. And if you were to really look into one of those jewels, you'd see in one of those jewels, what is reflected is all the other jewels in the net. You go to another jewel, and in that jewel, you see reflected all the other jewels in this endless, endlessly vast net. This is, this is how our practice is situated in such an interdependent web. As I was saying, practicing for oneself, it's impossible just to practice for yourself. We inevitably are practicing for others in such a web. And I just want to point this out, just to point out some some basic things about this. And you might have noticed this before. Simply your willingness to be here on retreat has a significant impact on others. You You might have friends or colleagues or people from your sangha that are actually moved by what you're doing here they may not completely understand it. Some of your friends might, you might have friends that are practitioners, but they're moved by what you're doing here and they're honoring it. 
Yeah, and it's true, you probably have other friends that just think you're crazy, but <laughs> there are people that are moved. And I know when I come out here on the East Coast to teach a long retreat like this, or part of the three-month retreat, you know, there's a few people who have done long retreat in Flagstaff, and it's, it's like they always want me to send their regards to those who are on long retreat because they know how powerful it is and how important it is. And for them, it's because they feel like it makes such an impact for the world that we live in. So it's important to know that there are people out there that are touched by what you're doing here. It makes a difference. I know for me at times, this, this holding it in a, a, a broader context, the practice has been uh, really quite helpful, kind of a, a lifesaver at times. I remember, um, you know, I was, I was a monk in the Zen tradition for a number of years. And, uh, well, it's the way it is. It, it's also some of those, those years were some of the darkest times of my life. It was just, it was just, tough stuff, a lot of purification going on, and there was a lot of difficulty, internal difficulty. And it was, I remember just that feeling at times of going through the motions of living, but lacking the feeling of actually really being alive. You ever have that feeling? It's like you're moving in life, but you can't feel like you're living. And I remember there wasn't much keeping me going. And sometimes what the, the small flicker of light in my practice was, was this sense of, oh, to, to practice for others was something that really helped me in, in those times. And sometimes, not always, sometimes it was just this practicing for others just to keep a practice going to keep this tradition going, there's something really um, uplifting about that because it, it took me be beyond my kind of myself small confinement that I was locked into. And I think there can be something powerful about just the feeling that of keeping a practice going over all these generations that we're just this, this, in this, uh, this little piece of this huge lineage, this huge line of practitioners in a tradition leading to awakening. What a beautiful thing to be a part of. And sometimes I think for some of us, I, I don't know for everyone, some of us it can be kind of uh, because of the way we're culturally situated, sometimes a little challenging to get a taste of, but, uh, but I think it's still there. I'm actually reminded of a, a story that I was told about um, the indigenous peoples that, that lived uh, in the area that I live now in the Southwest. You know, this is thousands of years ago. And uh, some of the nomadic tribes, what they would do is that in one place, they would, um, they would very carefully bury um, food, in particular, uh, uh, usually ground up corn or dried corn or other... other um, 
food pieces and they'd bury it uh, in a way that it would keep. And because of their nomadic um, trail, they were, were actually not burying food for themselves, but for generations to come. Because by the time the tribe were to come back to that place in the Southwest, they would have already been dead. So it was a sense of, of living a life that was so intertwined with a line, a lineage, a tribe of something much greater than them. So maybe we're here, here just to, to leave behind some nourishment for others through our practice. Yeah, so this, this practice reaches much farther than just our own lives. Maybe another example of how this practice goes much farther than just our small little life or my small little life. And a, a story really about healing, which I, I feel dovetails so well with this journey of awakening, so intertwined. I remember uh, working with a woman and uh, she'd shared with me that she'd uh, been in quite a few abusive relationships. There was a cycle that was going on and and through this healing process that I was um, supporting her with and intertwined with, it was really striking. There was a point where she started to realize that she was healing a dynamic that actually stretched back for generations in various farms. And it, it, was, it was interesting because this was the turn. She started to have this feeling that she was stopping a dynamic that went beyond her own life. And during that period, she started to have dreams. And from her world view, your, your world view might be different, but from her world view, there was this palpable inner sense of feeling supported by her ancestors, especially the women of her family. And this feeling of how proud they were of her and that somehow they will, were being healed by her healing. A kind of healing that extended behind, beyond her separate sense of self. It was intertwined with this sense of family. And I want to acknowledge some of you might have felt something simpler with your own healing journey or your own healing process. For me, the, this practice is the same. It's, it's the feeling of putting an end to old habitual patterns. I think in, in some ways when I bring this to mind, it, it provides a different way of, for example, understanding rebirth. Chogyam Trungpa, the uh, Tibetan teacher, he's, he, somebody asked him what gets reborn. And he said, your bad habits. <laughs> Which I love. 
And what a cool thing to do a practice where these bad habits get to stop here. They no longer are reborn. What a beautiful thing to offer to the world for it to stop once and for all with this life, with this lifetime. And I want to point out, it's not only what we carry over from our families, but I feel collectively in our society or societies that we find ourselves thrown into. The same thing is going on, this same kind of healing or awakening. That when I meditate, I'm navigating this kind of old habitual conditioning that can be so harmful. feel the, the spiritual teacher Krishnamurti puts it really well and really elucidates this point when he shares, if you don't know how your mind reacts, if your mind is not aware of its own activities, you will never find out what society is. You may read books on sociology study social sciences, but if you don't know how your own mind works, you cannot actually understand what society is because your mind is a part of society. Your mind is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do and what you think, society is made up of all of this. It is the replica of what is going on in your mind. So your mind, your mind is not apart from society. It is not distinct from your culture, from your religion, from your various class divisions, from the ambitions and conflicts of the many. All this is society and this is your mind. I find that striking. These thoughts and these patterns that arise in this mind, those tendencies, it's not about me, it's this conditioning. You'd say it's this collective, at least on the unwholesome side, this collective greed, hatred, and delusion. Takes the forms of racism, sexism, environmental degradation. And he goes on, which I think is kind of interesting about addressing this. So since the habit of pattern thinking has already been established in you, even if you do revolt, it is within the pattern. It is like prisoners revolting in order to have better food, more conveniences, but it's always happening within the prison. So your revolt, like the so-called revolution brought about by ambitious or very clever people, is always limited. That is not revolt, that is not revolution. 
It is merely heightened activity, activity a, mere, a more valiant struggle within the pattern. Real revolt, true revolution is to break away from the pattern. So it's almost like our reactivity to these thoughts arising, sometimes the pushing them away or revolting against them is just part of the prison. But I think what we're given with this practice is the gateway, it's the key out of the prison. And in terms of this practice of Vipassana, it's the key through simply noticing, taking the seat of being aware, of noticing these dynamics, because that's, that's how I can step out of it. Noticing the mind. Sometimes when I, when I look at w- what the mind does, especially around the dynamics of judging, it's, it's like I'm just noticing the activity of the one who oppresses the oppressor. And at other, t- other times, I'm just noticing the one who is oppressed. It's all happening right here in the mind. You know, specifically, sometimes I can notice it in judging, judging others, judging myself. Right? The, the tendrils, the foundation of oppression sometimes. Or being the one that is being victimized by my judging. And it's just that small shift in attention from being lost in that to actually noticing it, being being able to even like label, oh, judging. Judging is just like this. That's all it is. I don't have to create somebody around this. So much freedom for myself and for others when I do this. You can come on retreat and you can have all kinds of groovy, amazing, meditative experiences. (laughs) But I find just to see the dynamic of the mind like this clearly, wow, what a gift to the world that we live in. That's why I like the title of Rob Burbea's book, The The Scene That Frees. And it frees not only me, but the world that I live in. And also what I appreciate about this frame is that when this stuff arises, I don't have to take it so personally. It's just, it's just what, what I've been given. It's my inheritance. That's all it is. Right? This, this mind that's afflicted by racism, that, is, that has been shaped by racist thoughts and sexist thoughts, that is blind to ability or age. Right? That's, that's just the inheritance. And what a beautiful thing to do a practice where that the mind can start to become free from that.
And I think then when I really get that, then when those kinds of habitual patterns happen, it's not a drag, right? Because there's the opportunity to have a different relationship to it. Because it's not about me. And there's the potential to have a kind of freedom as long as there's this practice, this influencing, this willingness to be present, to engage in the scene that frees. So hopefully you can see how this fits so well with this image of Indra's net. If you're here on this retreat and you're engaged in this practice, there's no way it can be just for yourself. It's inevitably gonna reverberate into this world, this web that we live in. And I want to point out what I'm sharing with you is, as you can see, this is not about doing something different. I've just given you one small thing to do, to place this intention throughout the day. May this be for the benefit of all beings and, or whatever, whatever you know, rendition you want of that, if you feel, feel moved in this direction. And then continuing with the practice in that sense. And hopefully you can start to see how this is intimately intertwined with wisdom. It's tearing me out of this false notion that I'm some fixed, separate sense, fixed, separate self. Through this, there's a dismantling of such a delusion that can cause so much harm for ourselves and others. I think I'll end just with this, uh, this dedication that I find moving. It's a, a dedication for a Red Tara practice, but I think it fits for what we're all doing here together. It goes, throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice, and all that I will ever attain, this, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being. While their wisdom and compassion increase in this and in every future life. May I clearly perceive all experiences to be insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in the arising of every phenomenon. And may I quickly attain awakening in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings. Let's just sit for a moment and then we'll uh, take some time to uh, chant the uh, sharing of the merit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.